How's everybody doing today? All right. Now, you know what? A hand clap will do it. A woo will do it. A good will do it. A hallelujah is a, you clearly love Jesus. Uh, hey, how's everybody doing? I said that already. Don't answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hallelujah. There you go. Whoever did that, let's go. Um, yeah, my name is Josh. I mentioned that earlier, service lead pastor. Uh, man, I am grateful to be here this morning. I got to tell y'all, last week I mentioned the fact that I had way too much coffee. And so I was up here having a mild anxiety attack. This week, I had zero coffee. So I'm up here having the opposite of an anxiety attack. I'm a little bit like, what's happening right now? So uh, I think I'm going to, I'm trying to even it out. Maybe we'll go to one cup next week and see what happens. We'll see. All my caffeine addicts are with me though. Uh, so what we're going to do today, guys, is we're going to jump from here into our time in the scriptures, this time where we open the Bible and we believe these words were given to us by God, that they are faithful and reliable to tell us the story of God and his people and what he's doing in the world. And as we work through these words, we, we, we believe, right, that God actually meets us here and that God's spirit works through us and it works in us. And if there's things that we're bringing to the table that we receive encouragement and hope for, but if, if there's like, you know, things, just joys that we're uplifted, but, but also if there's struggles that they can be changed, that they can be actually like, like we can be built up through time when we're engaging God's word because of God's spirit and how God's spirit works through these words. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to jump in here. We're going we're gonna to take some time to continue a sermon series, which is kind of just a set of ideas that we're, we're tackling over the course of a few weeks called Ashes to Ashes. This is focused on the season of Lent. Everybody say Lent. Lent. Not Lent, because uh, apparently nobody else has that problem. I, for like the first 15 years of my life, was like, yeah, man, like Catholics celebrate Lent. Uh, so apparently none of y'all thought that was funny because none of you ever said Lent before in your life when thinking about the Lent season. But not Lent, Lent. And Lent is a time of, of the, the church calendar historically. What does that mean? It means like a time where, where the church uh, over the years has developed a rhythm where we prepare our hearts to celebrate the resurrection. Now the thing is to celebrate the resurrection, we also have to mourn and, and in some ways celebrate uh, the death of Christ as well. And so over the course of the weeks leading up to Good Friday, which is the day we honor the death of Jesus, and then from there on Easter Sunday when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we, we go through a season where we consider really the difficulties and darkness uh, that, that necessitated the role and the work of Jesus. And so we started talking, I mean, just through the course of the series, we talked about suffering, we talked about the need to trust in God, we talked about sorrow in terms of sorrow that we feel from sin, uh, or at least that we're invited to feel uh, due to the reality of sin. And this week we're going to continue that by talking about everybody's favorite subject, repentance. Uh, and so everybody say repentance. repentance. Yeah, okay. So uh, don't, don't, don't feel too jittery and anxious just yet. I think that by the time we get to the end of what we're talking about, I, I hope you will be encouraged. Uh, because let's start by just getting the idea of what is repentance. I'm starting a timer, y'all, just so I keep myself accountable. Um, repentance, the, historically, right, traditionally, one thing you've probably heard is that, that the idea of repentance is to turn away, to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. And you've probably heard sermons about 
if you've been in church a while, about how repentance is twofold. It's likewise what you turn from, and it's likewise what you turn to, because repentance has very little meaning if I turn from sin to sin, and then I turn from sin over here to other sin. And so it's turning from sin and to light in God. And, and that's what we want to think about, right? Well, repentance. What is repentance? How does, it, how does it work? As we consider our sin, as we look at the darkness of the world, as we think about trusting God and then recognize our failure to trust God at times, we start to feel a lot of things, or we maybe start to think a lot of things, or we start to talk to ourselves in a certain way. And, and, and really, what, what the heart and what the Spirit of God is aiming at is how can I nudge this person toward repentance? And the thing is, because we don't consider repentance maybe enough, we live in a culture today where repentance is, you know, a little bit of a touchy subject. At least the action is, is not a beloved action across the board. And so we kind of miss out on this, but, but we want to bring it to the forefront today and think about repentance, right? What is it, what, what, what's going on here, and why do we do it? And so what we want to do is from here, we're going to take a look at Joel chapter 2. And in Joel chapter 2, uh, God is encouraging, or the prophet Joel, uh, God through the prophet Joel, is encouraging the people of God to repent of something. What are they repenting of? Well, to set the stage for what they're repenting of, we have to know what's going on that makes them feel a need to repent. Uh, in, in verse, I want to say two, like right from the get-go here, um, we're thinking about what's called a locust plague. And so the prophet's basically saying, hey, it's going to be a locust plague, and there's not going to be anything that you can do about it, right? You're not going to have any food, any drink. This goes so far to impact the life at the temple. In Joel chapter 1, verse 9, uh, it says, Grain, drink, and offerings have been cut off from the house of the Lord, the priests who minister the Lord mourn. And so what is this related to? It's related to the fact that there's no, there's no grain. There's nothing to actually bring to the sacrifice. And so it's the locust plague is inflicting the community so bad uh, that it's not just impacting how people eat. It's even impacting like, like secondary, it, not secondary, but, but I'll say like the, the less common issues like, like bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I know that we're on the tail end of some of that, but I don't know how y'all been getting by on eating breakfast recently. Because if you're anything like me, I love me some eggs. And the moment I was like, how much is a dozen eggs? I was like, there's no eggs to bring the sacrifice to breakfast. Like, you know, I was, it was hurtful, right? It made me anxious. It made me scared. It made me worried. That's just a small example of the feelings that could have been taking place in the, the Israelite people. As they looked and said, man, there's no grain. There's nothing for us to eat. There's nothing for us to bring to the Lord. <coughs> Sorry. I have allergies. And so if I cough violently, like that right there, uh, into the side of the mic. I'm sorry. But, but what are they really scared of, right? What, are they scared to not eat? Well, no. They're scared that this is a sign of something greater. This is a sign of something maybe much worse. Uh, later on in chapter 1, in verse 15, uh, Joel continues, Woe because of that day, for the day of the Lord is near and will come as devastation from the Almighty. And this is important. This is an important, really, set of words. Let's go to the slide right before this, uh, Jackie. These, these, these three words, right, that are four words, day of the Lord. That's an important idea. They, they were fearful of something called the day of the Lord. And, and theologically through the Bible, it's a pretty important idea. It's a pretty important theme. You hear it a lot. You hear it talked about a lot. And, and what I want to do here is I want to trace this back so we can understand the background of what's happening, why there may be some fear, and what they feel like they need to repent of. And so what we're going to do is we're going to briefly, uh, but hopefully do justice to the idea uh, of the day of the Lord. And so we're going to go from here to bird's eye to like super high view in like a matter of seconds. So I want you to try to track with what I'm doing. I'm going to talk slowly, 
but I'm going to need you to listen, okay? Because when we think about this idea, it starts from the book of Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, there's this, there's this moment where God says, hey, here's this tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and, and he's like, hey, don't eat from this tree. You can have all the other trees, but don't eat from this tree. And then from there, he, he invites uh, Adam and Eve, the characters in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to, to just kind of rule over the garden. So he creates the world, and he creates people, and then he asks people to, to rule in his place, to, to shape the world according to God's love and character design and vision. Uh, and, and the unfortunate reality of the story is that they go to the tree, they eat it, and in eating it, right, they, they take upon themselves the role that God originally had. So the role that God originally had was this vision and role that says, hey, I define what's right or wrong. You rule underneath me, being governed by my rule of what's right and wrong. And then you go out into the world and make it beautiful based on that reality, that you're living under who I am, my definition of right and wrong. And the moment this happens in Genesis 3, this is distorted because now people start looking at themselves and going, well, how about I become my own judge of what's right and wrong? And then the rest of the story of the Bible kind of gets teased out in this exact way. The, the Tower of Babel in, in just a few chapters is, in essence, people doing what they see right, which is to make themselves so big that they build a tower up to the sky to, to reach God. Uh, they, they have uh, the book of Judges literally has a phrase that says, um, in those days, people did what was right in their own eyes. Right? And, I, and then in addition to that, there is this, this large moment right, in, in Egypt where you have people doing what's right in their own eyes in terms of Egypt themselves. And they enslaved the people of God after they had been friends with the people of God for several centuries. Then all of a sudden it was like, you know what? I think the right thing to do right now is to enslave these people. So, so there's, this, there's this very warped, dark theme that runs through the moment Genesis 3 starts, through almost the rest of the book pretty much, and this is this idea that as people take on themselves the role of God to say, I will define what's right, I'll define what's wrong, right, that darkness tends to perpetuate through the world because we don't have a good grip on what's right and what's wrong. We tend to think wrong is right, and sometimes right is wrong. So this is what happens through the book, but there is a, there is a semblance of hope Right, and in, in the beginning of Exodus, God redeems his people. He, he, he rescues his people. He brings them out of Egypt. And in Exodus 13, there's this really fun part uh, where they sing a song of gratitude to God. And they say uh, in verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leavened may be eaten. Now, don't pay attention to the leaven part because I don't got time to explain that. But do pay attention to the remember this day part because that's important. Remember this day is in essence saying, remember this day. Remember the day of the Lord. Remember the day where God entered back into the story and he saw what was wrong. He saw everything that people in, in their miscalculated view of right and wrong had done to screw things up. And he enters back in and redeems and rescues and makes things right. And this becomes a day that tends to be holy for, for, for God's people. They, they, they honor this day in, in celebrations throughout the, the, the year annually. But also it becomes a sense of hope that anytime something is wrong, that the day of the Lord will come. That it'll come and he'll make things right again. And so they continue on. And this is a, this is a hope for them. Um, except for as we progress in the story, we get to something called the prophets. Say the prophets. I know I'm, I'm telling a story here, so I'm trying to keep you all engaged as I tell the story. And the prophets begin to use this language. Again, they say the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. 
Except for this time, they're not saying the day of the Lord is coming against Babylon or against Egypt or against Syria or against the Philistines. They start saying the day of the Lord is coming and it's coming against you. Because God gave you his law. He told you what was right. He set you apart from all the peoples in the world. And yet you still chose to be your own judge, what was right and what was wrong. And through that choice, right, you've perpetuated darkness in your community. You've perpetuated darkness around you in the world. And now the day of the Lord is coming against you because he's going to come against you to make right what's been made wrong by you. Enter back into Joel 2. And so this is what's, what's kind of happening here, right? That's what they need to repent of. Not just a specific action, right? But this idea that over the course of time, right, humanity has this, this desire to make ourselves the judge of what's right and what's wrong. And, and now God has looked at Israel and said, you too, despite the fact that I told you what's right, I've given you laws to build out how you see my, my will and desire for you. You too have said, I'm going to be my own judge though. I want to judge the world for what's right and what's wrong, and, and I'll make my own choices based on what I think is best. And from here, they feel the weight of the, the prophets coming and saying, man, God's coming, and he's going to make things right, and fortunately he's going to make them right against you. But here's what we pull from that right away from just learning the context. The first thing we realize um, is this, that Joel 2 applies to everyone. Joel 2 applies to everyone, primarily because everyone is in need of repentance. Everyone is in need of repentance because everyone has taken that place. Everyone, um, everyone has taken that place of being the judge of what's right or what's wrong in our lives. Every time we've hurt someone, every time we've left someone hurting and we've seen people in need and been like, ah, uh, not today. Every time we, we, we've implicitly hurt someone by our actions, right, that, or maybe by our lack of actions. Every time we've known what was the right thing to do and avoided doing it. Every time we, we knew the wrong thing to do but gave ourselves to it. Every time that's happened, each and every moment there, there's something in our mind and in our heart that's going, I want to be the judge of what's right. I want to be the judge of what's wrong. And I will choose for myself what the best course of action is. I'm, I'm going to put God's way to the side. Every single one of us has done that. And that, in that way, we're all in need of repentance. And here's the thing. This is what makes this a little bit intimidating and a little bit, a little bit frustrating is that this isn't a particular moment. So often we think of sin as a particular moment. We think of repentance as being related to a particular moment. We go, okay, I did this one thing, so I need to repent of that. And then from there, I'm good to keep going. But, but really, this is, this is articulating or pointing to a principle that we live by. You see, it's that principle that's the underlying structure to all of our actions. Our actions aren't just like, I made a mistake. Our actions aren't like, oh, I slipped up right there, but overall, I'm a good person. Right? What, what Joel is highlighting, what the, what the Bible invites us into, is that we have this principle we live by that we get to gauge what is right and what is wrong, and we make the choices for ourselves. And so when we repent, we don't repent of a single action. We repent, God, I, in my heart and my mind, I've turned away from your ways. And I've decided to take on myself my own ways. And in those moments, I've perpetuated darkness. I've hurt people. I've sinned against you. And so because of that, everyone is in need of repentance. And here's the thing. Uh, I actually have a, I have a little, little example of this. And it seems small, but, but I want you to track with me. <coughs> Yesterday, I went to Home Depot. Um, there's a Home Depot like right next to my house. It's literally like two minutes away. So I'm there a lot. 
I'm not the handiest person, but I'm at Home Depot a lot. I'll say that much, all right? Um, I knew, oh God, I can't be making these jokes. I got time. Okay, so um, I went to Home Depot and I had a pre-order. I needed perlite because I needed to increase the drainage of some soil and I needed a little plant saucer uh, to hold some water. So I went there and, and I ordered a 12-inch plant saucer and, and a bag of perlite, but they called me a few, uh, like, like two hours after that and were like, hey, we only have 10-inch plant saucers. Uh, will you take that? I said, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. I went to go get it. When I went to go get it, I went inside. He pulled out the perlite and said, hey, we didn't get a chance to get the, the plant saucer yet. I can go get it for you. And I said, nah, it's okay. I'll, I'll run over there and get it myself. I went back there. I started looking around. All right, I started looking around and I'm like, uh, okay, I'll, I'll grab the 10-inch plant saucer. I asked him before I left, did you put this on the, on the ticket already? He said, yeah, yeah, I already put the 10-inch plant saucer back on the ticket. I look around, I, I think to myself, I'm here a lot. There's usually a stand, like a Christmas tree of plant saucers. And that's not where it's supposed to be. And there's this little section of plant saucers wherein this person is right. There is not a 12-inch plant saucer. But there's a 10-inch plant saucer. However, if I find that Christmas tree, I bet that's a 12-inch plant saucer. So I go around the garden center and I start looking. I start looking up, I start looking down, I'm looking behind trees, under them. All right, I'm just, I'm in there like having a safari. Uh, when I get, finally find it, I turn uh, past the trees, I look and I'm like, hey! And so I find it and sure enough, I look down and I find a 12-inch plant saucer. I, I look at it, I, I turn it over, sure enough, it says 12-inch. And I look at the one in my hand, which is 10-inch. And I think to myself, they won't know the difference. I put it back. Pick up my 12-inch plant saucer, start headed to the door. As I'm passing through the door, I see the customer service rep that just got through telling me, I put the 10-inch plant saucer back on your, on your ticket. I looked at him, held up my 12-inch plant saucer, and said, got it, and walked right out the door. All right, so in that moment, that seems small, it seems like something most of us would be like, oh, I'm not even trying to repent of that. That's not even a big deal. It's like all of 20 cents difference between them. And more thing that happens is their inventory is a little, a little off, but so much so they're like, write that 20 cents off. And so really no one gets quote unquote hurt by that moment. But that's the principle at work. You see, what you don't realize is I recognize, you know, I need to go back, I need to pay that 20 cents. Or at least I need to confess that, yo, I found a, ten, a 12 inch one, so you may want to switch that. And reality is they're probably gonna go, don't worry about it. And if they do, fine. I'm going to have my 12-inch plant saucer that I paid for a 10-inch plant saucer for, you know? However, at work is the principle of going, he said 10, I have 12. You know what? It's not that big a deal. It won't matter long term. Let me go ahead and walk out with the 12. When that is at work, it gets teased out long term, and all of a sudden you find yourself like, you know what? She'll never know. He'll never know. Long term, no one will get hurt. My boss will never find out. My wife, my husband will never find out. It's the principle at work that we repent of, knowing that it's that principle that drives darkness, not the small actions, the principle at work in the heart. And so everyone is in need of repentance because everyone is living within the constraints and, and, and the afflictions of that principle. Now, here's the thing. At this point, you may be thinking like, my God, how much do I have to repent of then? Because if this man is up here talking about a plant saucer, he has no clue what I've done with my life. And so you're feeling anxious maybe, right? Because you're like, bro, seriously, if you're talking about a 10-inch to 12-inch plant saucer, you didn't even steal it. You just underpaid for it, right? Like that's what you're thinking to yourself. And, 
And here's the thing. That's what makes today's text really powerful, Frank. Let's continue on in the text. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 starts, even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. What are the first words there? Can we go back to the beginning of this verse, verse 12? What are those first words? Everybody say it together. Even now. Even now. It's a phrase in the Bible that communicates something called long-suffering. This type of patience, this type of mercy, this type of faithfulness that despite whatever you've done, despite all that you've done, despite whenever you did it, despite however you did it, despite how intentionally you did it, despite how unintentionally you did it, God still stands and declares, come back to me, even now. Even considering all that, even knowing all that, even seeing where you've been and seeing what you've done, even knowing where you come from, even now, the Lord declares, right, turn to me, turn to me. This is the second point that I want you to take away from this text about repentance, is that through repentance, no one is too far from grace. Through repentance, no one is too far from grace. Because even now, even now, the Lord declares, turn to me. Turn to me. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how you feel about yourself. Doesn't matter how other people feel about you. All the reasons that we give ourselves once we feel like we've failed. All the reasons we give ourselves once we feel like we've stumbled. None of them are enough. Because over those words, over those anxieties, over those, those voices stands the Lord saying, even now, even now, I declare to you, turn to me. Uh, many of you have heard this story before, but when I was, uh, when I was 12 years old, I got arrested for possession of some illegal substances. I was in eighth grade at the time. Uh, and I'm not gonna lie to you, I thought I was a little thug, I thought I was a little hot stuff. Uh, and I'll be honest, when they pulled me in at first, I got a little anxious, and then I saw my homeboy. Uh, which one was it? This is how you know I don't completely, like, turn out the sermons typing, because I cannot remember this brother's name at the moment. Danny, maybe? I saw one of my homeboys, and I looked at him, and instantaneously when I saw him, I thought to myself, I don't know why, but I feel kind of cool right now. It's a thing on a side note. I think it's a testimony to what community does because even in the context of community, when I knew we were getting in trouble, I was like, we're okay now because we're together. We're in trouble and we're young and stupid, but we're together and in trouble and young and stupid. So I see him, I start feeling like, hey, we're going to be okay. And then all of a sudden when they start handcuffing me, they start taking me out of the school, I start, I start feeling this rush because they let me out and they pulled me on the handcuffs right when they had rang the lunch bell. And so all the kids were moving through the hallway and they pulled me right through them. And I'm not going to lie, y'all, the little thing in me that was trying to be like a little, a little bad boy was like, oh yeah, I'm bad. Look at me in handcuffs, right? I felt all this sort of weird pride. It was super stupid. I saw all this stupid little weird pride. I'm saying stupid a lot for a sermon. I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and they pulled me out, and they finally got me to the car. And the moment I hit the, the, the back of the, of the seat in the car, I looked up, and I saw the, the little black cage that was in front of me. My heart sank. And I realized, like, man, what am I doing? And the rest of the next few hours, I was littered with anxiety. I started thinking to myself, what have I done? And what is it going to do to my life? What are my parents going to think? I have good parents. My parents love me. 
They've taught me well. Like, they, I know better than this. I sat down at the jail, and I was waiting for my mom to get me. She came. She got me. Um, I see the disappointment on her face. I get to her house. She's, like, crying. I'm like, oh, God, all right? And so all of a sudden, she picks me. She's like, we got to go see your dad. And at that point, y'all, I am, like, I'm scared. I am scared. Because if y'all know, Robert Guerrero sitting back there. That's him. That, he's a stout man nowadays. At 65, 63, pops? 64. <clears throat> he's a stout man now. He be doing them walls sometimes. He got a hurt back. He's still doing it. Imagine 20 years ago, just, just stout. Just stout, thick Mexican hands. I was terrified. And we sat down, uh, and we told my mom what it, I, we, my mom told my dad what had happened. And I don't even know if I said sorry, y'all. But I remember I looked up, and I looked down, and I looked up, and I looked down so many times because I was, quite frankly, scared. And I think my dad could tell that I was just terrified. And that, that terrified meant that I had probably felt a little bad about, or at least regretted what I had done. And all the anxiety and fear in me built up, and then he looked at me and he said, you're a good young man, and we're gonna get through this together. And I started crying. I always tell the story, I start crying. Side note, I really feel the need to tell you, if you have kids, if you don't make room for grace with your kids, they're never gonna believe that they can receive grace later on. And in my own life, my dad, uh, he'll be the first one to tell you, like, I've had a, a hot temper and things. And not me. He, uh, me too. But him, but he's had a hot temper. Maybe the correlation is there. I don't know. I'm just like, um, but, but he'll be the first to say, I've had a hot temper about things. You know, I've gotten upset about things, X, Y, and Z. But one thing he's faithfully done is been able to tell me, like, hey, uh, you're forgiven. Even after he's gotten upset. And that's been the framework that I've built the rest of my life on going, you know what? I can be forgiven. And so if you have kiddos, I want you to know, man, make, make space for grace with the kiddos. Be disciplined. Ain't nothing wrong with that. But, but man, make space for grace when that discipline falls through. Because that was one of the most defining moments in my entire life. And friends, no one, through repentance, right, no one is too far from grace. Um, <clears throat> okay, and so now you might be thinking, okay, so I just have to say I'm sorry then. So that's the next thing, right? Maybe I just got to say I'm sorry so I can mess this up. I could be like, hey, my bad. And then we're squared. Me and God are good, right? I'm good with myself. Everything's fine. No. Okay, so we keep moving through the text. We're going to go back to, to read 12 again, and we're going to read 13 as well. In verse 12, even now, this is the Lord's declaration, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Uh, let's go to verse 12 real quick. Um, back here. Four words. With all your heart. Everybody say, with all your heart. This word heart... This word heart in the Hebrew. Uh, I ain't going to try to pronounce it because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely butcher it. Okay, say it again. I think you might have butchered it to be quite fair. But, 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 but we're out here giving it a shot. Lave. Okay, think so. See, I got him a little insecure now. He was like, I, I think so. I don't know. But, yes. And what it is is it's a word that communicates the idea of the, the seat of all the human emotions and senses and will. And so it has this pretty powerful connotation. 
It's not just this idea of like, hey, your, your feelings. It's saying the center of one of the, one of the early kind of interpretations of it is that like, it's like the, the, the life of the soul that's operating inside of you. And so when he says, even now, this declaration of the Lord, turn to me with all of your soul. Turn to me with the place that, that, that is the seat and center of all of your emotions and feelings and thoughts. It's a pretty powerful idea. It means that repentance should move your emotions. It should move you in some way. It should move your heart, the center of who you are in some way, right? If you're just looking up at God and being like, hey, my bad, my bad. I'll do better next time. Like a teenager that's trying to get out of trouble, trying to shut you up and, and then trying to move on with their life, right? That's not repentance. That's not repentance. That's a formality, but that's not repentance. Repentance should move you in some way, right? It should be accompanied, it should be accompanied by a subtle or even major, right, feeling of conviction, of regret, of disappointment, right? A feeling of remorse, not just social graces. And here's the thing, I don't say that wanting you to feel this sense of like, oh, I have to, it has to be so dramatic. No. It can be as simple as what I just said when I got in my car, I got back home, I started doing some work in the soil, and I had this fleeting small feeling that went, you know, bro, that wasn't right. Right? Subtle or big. Subtle or Psalm 51, I'm crying out to God. Right? I'm crying out, please don't take your salvation from me. Right? It can be either one, but it should move you in some way. It should move you in some way. He continues, this is highlighted in verse 13, because in verse 13, he continues, uh, Joel, tear your hearts. That's the same word, tear uh, your, say it again, Mark. Actually, this is the fuller version, lay off. Bam, I told you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Uh, lay off. Lay off. Or you, were, you were good at Hebrew. What did you, what was it? All right, you don't. Okay. Um, okay, so lay off. We'll say it's the same word. We'll just leave it at that. Tear your hearts, that same word, right? Tear, your, tear the seat of your emotions, tear the soul, the life of your soul. Tear that instead of tearing your clothing. A lot of y'all know this, some of you don't. In this culture, people express regret or remorse by tearing their clothes. And that, that tearing of your clothes was a public way of saying, this is wrong or, or that was wrong. Maybe it's something that happened to you, maybe it's something that Someone did it to someone else, but, but people tore their clothes as this public and rather ceremonial way of saying, that's not cool. That's not right. Here's the thing. That public display didn't guarantee that someone actually felt the things they were doing. It was just rather a public display of affirming that something wasn't right, something wasn't wrong, or something was wrong. And here, God is saying, don't do that, right? Don't just, don't just ceremonially or socially say, I'm sorry, Right? Not, that, that, that's not what repentance is again. Right? That leads us to our third point, that repentance is feeling the weight of what we do. Repentance is feeling the weight of what we do. Don't just tear your clothes. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Don't make it a formality. Don't be like, oh, yeah, my bad, God. Right? But actually feel the weight of what we've done. Feel the weight of what you've done. Right? Again, maybe it's small. Maybe it's just like, yeah, that wasn't cool. Maybe it's, my God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, it, but there has to be some connection with the actual heart saying, that's not okay. That's not okay. And it can't just be ceremonial. It can't just be, yeah, yeah, that's not cool. 
It has to be, no, deep down, from the life of my being, that's not okay. That's not all right. Uh, our son, Jude, he's like perpetual story, perpetual, perpetual. Uh, I'm going to have to repent to him one of these days about this. I already know. But uh, he is three now. And so he's right at that age where he's starting to learn empathy. And this isn't a bad story. This is just him being naturally three years old. And so uh, he is three, and he's starting to learn empathy, starting to learn compassion, starting to learn how to, how to properly apologize. Uh, and I'll be honest that we started realizing shortly into this phase that we really had to, like, change our tactic up when it came to the apologizing thing. Because he'd do something, he'd, like, hurt his sister, he'd hurt me, and he'd be like, hey, say you're sorry, man. Then he'd be like, I'm sorry. They just run off and do his own thing again, right? He had absolutely no compassion for it, no empathy. And I looked at my wife and I was like, that's kind of like sociopathy, right? And then I was like, I went and I read and I was like, no, 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 three years old, they still don't even know what's going on here. Like they're learning the idea of empathy and compassion. And I was like, I don't want my son to be a sociopath. And we started realizing, yo, we need to change up our tactic here. And so uh, recently what we started trying to do is just show him how his actions hurt other people. So we're not even really correcting him, but we're kind of just showing him like, hey, Man, that's not cool. Like, this, this is what your actions did to me. Yesterday, a lot of, basically almost everything I've talked about really happened yesterday. Today, yesterday was an eventful day. <coughs> I went outside, and I went to go mess with some flowers or something. I was trying to, like, prepare for some outdoor work we're doing. It's not a Japanese garden if you were here yet. It's not a Japanese garden. However, I was out there, and I was out there for all of two minutes, 120 seconds. I turned around and started walking toward the door. As I started walking toward the door, all I hear is, and then I get up to the door, I look at him, and he's just sitting there like. <laughs> and I'm like, Jude, did you lock the door? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, Poppy, I'm cold. And he's like, okay. And I'm like, Poppy, I'm cold. Like, I'm starting to get cold. I went out, y'all, I'm not going to lie. I went out there like a T-shirt because I was just going to check in on something. And y'all know it was cold yesterday. So I came out the door, and I started putting my hands in my pockets. And I was like, Jude, I'm serious, baby. I'm cold. Can you please open the door? And me and my wife know, like, we're trying to communicate this. So it's even worse. It's like I see my wife walk by, and I see my wife walk by again and go back to the chair. And she's like, yo, you deal you don't want to have this idea about letting him know what he was doing and how it hurts us. You're dealing with it now. So I'm sitting there like, Bobby, it's cold. I'm serious. Bobby, please open the door. You're hurting daddy because daddy's actually feeling really, di like, a lot of discomfort. And so as he starts looking, I can see his face kind of be like, and then he just unlocks it, opens it, and he goes, I'm sorry, Daddy. And I was like, money! I was like, parent win! Parent W, right? Um, and, but, but that's a great example, right? Hey, open the door. Unlocks it, opens it. Say you're sorry. I'm sorry. Two minutes later, right? Like, that's the process. And when we think of repentance as such, that is our process. When our process is limited to saying, hey, God, I know you told me that something was bad. My fault. I won't do it again. And then we go and we play with our toys and we play with our life and we play with X, Y, and Z. And then we show up again and we go, oh, my God, bad, my, my bad, God, I, I kind of messed that up. I know you said don't do that. And then we go and we play with it. And it's just a formality. Just a formality. But when we feel the weight of what we've done, we feel the weight of our actions. And we're invited into it to a deeper moment with God. I can't tell you the, the love that I felt as a father when I walked in and my son looked at me and went, hey, I'm sorry. I've seen that boy, like at two years old, he was doing the monkey bars. My dude's a stud. You don't know, you haven't heard me talk about my son as being a physical monster. If he wants to play D1, you think he has the potential. Take a lot of hard work, but I think he has the potential. But man, I've seen him do the monkey bars. 
I've never felt more proud of him than when he opened the door and said, Daddy, I'm sorry. So much of our identity is built on simply going, look at what I can do. Look at what I can do. Repentance repentance invites us into an intimate moment where we can say, look at who I am. Look at who I belong to. Even now, even now he declares, turn to me. With all your heart, with all my heart. Repentance is an invitation to feel the weight of what we do. It's feeling the weight of what we do. Now, here's the thing, friend. I think as we're, we're talking about this, for a lot of us, this feels really uncomfortable um, because according to our culture, this isn't really like, this isn't broadly accepted. We use language now, right, that, uh, that desperately tries to deflect responsibility and not take it on. And so even subtle changes like my truth is, is a way of saying, this is my version of stories, and in my version, I'm largely justified. And we may use a word like my truth because we're scared of a truth, and we might be, we might be condemned by a truth. If the truth is objective, it's out there, and it's standing, and it, it doesn't change, then it may stand that it looks at me and says, you're wrong. So using a, a subtle word like my truth is, is a way to skirt that. And so we, we do this in our culture quite a lot. But that's not what happens in today's story, friend. I'm, I'm glad to tell you. When a truth is out there, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in order to condemn. In fact, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, God himself in this doesn't respond like that at all. In fact, I'm, I'm glad to say that when repentance happens, when this honest, right, like, like, like heartfelt return to the Lord happens, that, that sense of condemnation and guilt, and that tends to never happen. That's just not the way God works. In fact, look at verse 18, and let's look at how these things dramatically change. I'm going to read 18 through 27. It's going to be a minute, but I want you to follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible. We're going to read it together. Starting in 18, it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and spared his people. The Lord answered his people, Look, I'm about to send you grain, new wine, and fresh oil. You will be satiated with them, and I will no longer make you a disgrace among the nations. I will drive the northerner far from you and banish him to a dry and desolate land. His front ranks into the Dead Sea and his rear guard into the Mediterranean Sea. His stench will rise. Yes, his rotten smell will rise, for he has done astonishing things. Don't be afraid, land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done astonishing things. Do not be afraid, wild animals, for the wilderness, pastures, have turned green, and the trees bear their fruit, and the fig tree and grapevine yield their riches. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God, because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floor, that's where they they gathered the crops and then they kind of processed them. The threshing floor will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and fresh oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts ate, the young locusts, the destroying locusts, and the devouring locusts, my great army that I sent against you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. 
My people will never again be put to shame. You will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. What a response. What a response. That's crazy. That's wild. Even now, come, right? Repent, turn to me with all your heart. And it still scares me sometimes to do it. It probably scares you too. And look at God's response when it happens though. That's incredible. It's so laced with just compassion and love and provision, right? In his response, he removes the locusts and he restores the, he restores the grain fields. And now remember, remember at the beginning, right? How the sacrifices weren't being offered up. Now, everyone's finna eat and the sacrifices are gonna be given up. In other words, the very thing the people were going to bring to God in their guilt was the very thing that God had mercifully gave them. The very thing the people were going to bring to God in their guilt was the very thing that God had mercifully gave them to bring and sacrifice to him at the temple in response to their repentance. I want to say, friend, uh, the same applies to us today. The exact same applies to us. Today, you might be scared of the idea of repenting, taking responsibility for what you've done, feeling the weight of what you've done. You may have spent your whole life trying to deflect the weight of what you've done because you've been scared to take responsibility for it. And some of that may be linked to the fact that you assume that every time you take responsibility for something, the thing around the corner is condemnation. The thing around the corner is, is weight and failure. But that's not so with God. You may have been nervous to take responsibility, but take heart. God has given you the very thing you're meant to bring to him in the midst of your guilt. So that when we feel the weight of our sin, right, what we look back on and what we bring and say, here's my sacrifice is the very thing that God gave us when he sent his very son into the world to take our sin. Right? I, think, I think like the Israelites, we find ourselves oftentimes in a locust storm of sin. We feel the weight of our own guilt, the weight of our own shame. We run, we try and dodge responsibility, and, and, and we do everything we can to get out of certain situations. And yet, God, in the midst of that, sends the very thing that we need, the very thing that, that will be needed in our repentance. He sends his very own son. And his son enters into the world and his son lives this beautiful life. He doesn't take it upon himself to judge what's right, to judge what's wrong. He says, God, your will, your will be done, right? He prays your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He looks at the cross and says, but yet not my will, but your will be done. He submits himself and he loves the world around him. He, the very world he created that had been broken and torn apart by people thinking we could be the judge, he enters into and starts to make beautiful like that. He's healing people. He's restoring people. People are, are coming alive at his very presence. And yet he takes the cross. He gives himself as a sacrifice, taking the darkness and the weight and the sin of the world so that we who are guilty could come and say, but here's what I have in response to my guilt. And God goes, I know, I gave that to you, you're forgiven. 
Now I'm going to pour the, the autumn rain on you. And I'm going to restore. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I gave. Friend, that's the beautiful end of repentance. The repentance doesn't say, God, forgive me. I feel so weighty. I feel so agonized. And God goes, okay, that's all right. We'll build back together. He does say that. But the result of repentance is him saying, I've already provided the very thing that covers you. I've already redeemed you. That's what that word literally means in the Old Testament. I've, I've covered you. I've brought you in. And that's the gospel. And I may go so far as to say that I don't think the gospel weighs on us. I don't think it comes alive on us until we look at God and go, man, I feel the weight of what I've done. I have. I've made myself the judge. I've brought darkness into the world around me. But even now, you say that I can turn to you with my heart open to you. And God responds with, I've already given you what you need. Look at that man on that cross. That's the beauty of repentance, friends. Like I said, it builds more intimacy than the, than the most incredible job of monkey bars could possibly do. Than the, the most incredible feat you could possibly achieve. What builds more intimacy me is you looking at God and going, I've, I've, I've come to you with all of my heart and saying, I've already provided what you needed. You're mine. A couple of... Uh, <coughs> A couple of practical takeaways I want you to, to go home with today um, as we think about what, what, how can we grow in this idea of, of repentance. The first one is, uh, is learn the desires of God, right? Is that how I wrote it? I think that's how I wrote it. Learn what God desires. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Um, learn what God desires. So oftentimes we're walking through life and we're, 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 we're walking blind. We're walking blind. We don't even know that there's things that we need to repent of. And to be honest, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. Sometimes we think we're living an incredible life because we're the judges, because we think we're doing the right thing. Meanwhile, the curses of God, not that he's looking at you and he's angry and just pouring out wrath, but the curses of God that have been instituted in the world, that when you, when you harm people, it tends to be that people start responding and harming you. And, and all of a sudden, we don't realize it because I've been the judge. I think I'm doing what's right, and I expect my life to be a blessing. And in reality, we're just incurring curse because we don't know what God desires. And so there needs to be a space where we learn what God desires. Maybe it's in small group. It's definitely in reading your Bible. It's definitely in connecting with the Spirit of God and allowing Him to form and shape us. But learn what God desires. And then second is learn, like, where you struggle with that, right? Learn where you struggle with that. Here's the reality. The more you learn about what God desires, the more you're going to realize how much you struggle with that. And that's okay, right? It, it, that's, that's, that's being human. So, so some of us look and go, I don't, I don't want to think about where I struggle. I don't want to think about where I fail. And so you think that if you just ignore it, it'll go away. And if it goes away, somehow you're better. No. You're not any more, any less human when you struggle because it is human to just struggle and to be like, man, you're God. The Bible is littered with people being like, man, your thoughts are like really above my thoughts. And your ways are like way above my ways, right? Like this is a regular, regular kind of modus operandi, right? This is how people operate in the Bible by being like, man, you're so, you're so above me. And so learn where you struggle with it. And then from there, <clears throat> man, rely on Christ and not yourself. Friend, rely on Christ and not 
yourself. That sounds easy, but that may be the most difficult application point for several of us in here. Because again, we want to come and say, look at how well I do the monkey bars, instead of opening the door and saying, Daddy, I'm sorry. Rely on Christ and not yourself. You're not meant to make it all up. You're meant to cling to the one who fulfilled everything that we were supposed to do and everything that God has a vision for and what it means to be human. That's what we're called to do now. And through him, we live a new life. Through him, we're given grace. As he resurrects, he resurrects and brings us to life spiritually and our lives do change. But that doesn't start by us being like, you know what, I really gotta get myself together. It starts by opening the door and saying, I'm sorry, daddy. And then the spirit of God does his work from there. So rely on Christ, not yourself. I'm hopeful and I'm prayerful that as we think through these realities of what repentance looks like, that, that it can fill your heart with a bit of peace so that you're not thinking about where you failed and where you're struggling and you're like, oh man, this is the end all of me. But we can start to put repentance in the proper frame that is probably a little, little deeper than we thought, but God's response to our, our responsibility in it is powerful and beautiful. And ultimately we find that ultimate response in the work of Jesus. And that's the one we cling to now in the midst of our struggles. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you, God, that you are the giver of the very things that we need in the midst of our repentance. That as we look at our lives and we consider all the ways that we failed, we feel the weight of those things, we feel the fear of those things, that we recognize all of us are in need of that. That as we look at that, Father, we're not, we're not, we don't need to be filled with fear because we don't stand in the, in the midst of condemnation. But we, fan, we stand before God that calls out even now, come to me uh, with all of your heart. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus, who is the, the very provision that we, we bring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.